The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Modern clothing consumption practices are not only environmentally destructive, but bad for Black people around the world. In our last episode, we talked about the volume of textile waste created each year and the millions of pounds of used clothing from the U.S. that is sent to Ghana and Haiti, creating a host of problems in those countries. Domestically, these items end up in landfills which are disproportionately located in working class and primarily Black and Latinx areas. This is Black Material Geographies, a show that explores the stories behind forgotten fibers and the fabrics you think you know all too well. I'm your host, Teju Adisa Farrar, speaking to you from Lenape Hoking, also known as Brooklyn. Designers are transforming their production methods in order to create more sustainable fashion systems. Using organic fibers and upcycling clothes are a couple of ways some designers are reducing their environmental impact. Upcycling is a term that is used to describe the process of converting an old or unused textile or garment into something new and more valued. Transforming byproducts, waste materials, dead stock, or unwanted fabrics into new textiles and apparel is a way to imbue materials with a new life and new meaning. Like Chloe Assam, who we spoke to in the last episode, there are several designers whose brands are committed to upcycling clothing, but who do not necessarily consider themselves sustainable designers. Many of these designers are Black people who grew up reusing what they had because that's just how it was. One such designer is Gordon Holliday. I discovered Gordon's work as an advisor for the Waste Management Design Challenge with the Slow Factory. He was one of the few designers chosen to be part of that challenge, and I was curious to know more about how he came to upcycling fashion. One of the main things that really got me started in this is just my curiosity for, really my curiosity to want to explore design in practical ways. I'm coming all the way from, well, I'm originally born in Baltimore, Maryland, but I live here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's my second home. Been here since I was 13. I think it really just came from like high school and individuality. When I was in middle school, we had uniforms because, you know, in the neighborhood we were living in, a lot of kids would get jacked for their Air Forces or, you know, new clothes that they were wearing. So we all had to wear uniform outfits back in Maryland. And when I moved to Charlotte, when I was in high school, it was like everybody had their own individuality. There was no uniforms no more. You could just wear whatever you wanted to wear. And it was kind of like through that moment, I really discovered fashion in that type of way. Always been an artist since I was a kid, but really understanding fashion and expressing myself was like the butt of it right there in high school, especially because the high school I went to had just opened its doors in 2007. And it was merging with 
all the different schools in the area. So you had like people coming from the School of the Arts and people coming from charter schools and magnet programs. And it's like all mashed into this one public school. I kind of like to say Mallory Creek created legends. That's really where my curiosity for fashion really started to begin in. And why did you decide that you would design your own clothes rather than buying clothes or whatever? Like, what was about it that you were like, I want to do this myself? <laughs> well, it's a funny backstory, but <laughs> me and my friends, we had a little dance crew back in the day. So <laughs> we all wanted to have our own, like, you know, clothes with our names on and stuff. And it really started off like that. And then eventually I just wanted to express my art through the clothing and it just morphed into roulette and really just like really cool graphics, really edgy, fun. And I was just really just amazed by just the expression and that kind of just got me into that, to that world. For many of us, fashion, music, dance, and expression are interwoven. For creative individuals like Gordon, there are many things that spark ideas and eventually led him on the path to upcycling and sustainable fashion. When I was like in sixth grade, I did this thing called the Asthma Awareness Poster Contest. And it was kind of like my first interaction with like having your design on a t-shirt. And I ended up winning this poster contest and they put my graphic on a t-shirt and I was just like, wow, that's so cool. Like I can wear this. I drew it on paper in sixth grade, but now I'm wearing it. Fast forward, I ended up going to like a barber shop and I saw this business card that said screen printing. And I was like, what's that? It's like with the t-shirts and you know, the guy informed me, yeah. And I picked up the card and I kind of printed out my first t-shirt with that company. And then it just morphed over time. And even as an artist, I always wanted to challenge myself in whatever field that I jumped into. So then I, I went back home in the summer of 2015 and I just kept like sharing my ideas with like my family members and friends and saying, hey, I really want to learn how to sew. Do you guys know any information? Do you know any information? And it kind of went from like me looking for classes to me finding out that my family actually has a history of sewing. It really went back from going to my sister who took a sewing class and then finding out that my grandmother was an industrial seamstress for NASA. And then that really put me in a whole different perspective because now I'm like, wow, this is like a lineage, you know, and learning that my great-grandmother was a quilter and made all my grandmother's clothing. It just kind of opened up a new part of myself that I had no idea of. And that got me into actually making and designing clothes. It's funny because I always knew my grandmother worked for NASA, but I didn't know exactly what she did. When I came back home, I learned how to sew in 2015. I went back to school and then I had another summer in 2016. And my dad was just like, yeah, you need to just come and spend time with your grandma, you know, stay with us for the summer this year and just spend time with your grandma, you know? And I was like, yeah, you know what, dad? Yeah, you're right. You know, I got time, you know, school's out, summer's here. So let me just spend time with grandma. So 2016, I went out there and I stayed for like three months living with my grandma, really living in the basement because <laughs> that's where I was sewing day in and day out. And I sat down with her. We did our first pair of pants together. Then we did a jacket, a daishiki as well. And I was just so amazed, you know, with my grandmother's stories and seeing that my cousins were also into it as well. And I'm like, wow, this I just like tapped into this history now. And, and it's a part of me. It's my code. It's my DNA.
Growing up, I used to make clothing out of old pillowcases and sheets for my family. I would even make shoes out of cereal boxes and scotch tape. One year for Halloween, my sister wore a pillowcase outfit I made her with platform sneakers she already had. I got secondhand clothing from both siblings and still repurpose old clothes. Some of us grew up doing these types of things not even knowing it is sustainable. And the designer Madia is one such creative individual. So my name is Mahdia. I'm from East Orange, New Jersey, originally. At the moment, I create one-of-one clothing that is made from, I guess you want to say, repurposed or discarded materials that boast healing properties. In addition to that, I also offer sewing sessions, mentorship, and also fabric healing workshops that are educational. Can you talk about the healing aspect of this? Because that's something I also haven't heard about. So I got into doing research and learned that I wanted to create a collection that was primarily out of linen, just because I was drawn to the material, but I didn't really know the background of it. And so I sat down and I was like, you know, if I'm going to put this collection out and really talk to people about why the entire collection is linen, this is the first time I've ever done this, I should probably do some background work. So in doing so, I learned about linen. I learned that it comes from the flax plant. It's a naturally occurring material in nature, which is very interesting to me. And then the deeper I got into it, the more I was like, oh, there's a lot to this. Okay, so linen has a vibrational frequency of 5,000. So does wool. And the body's vibrational frequency when it's at its optimal health is 100. So they took like certain plants and put them in this machine that tested the frequency so that farmers can understand when best to yield crops, that sort of thing. And then it ended up transferring over into linen because linen occurs in nature. It grows in the flax plant. So they ended up finding out that linen is a natural conductor. It vibrates energy. It maximizes and optimizes the energy. And people started to use it in healing. And then linen's actual molecular structure and like makeup is the closest to our actual cells. So if you ever have like a cut or abrasion, you can actually put a piece of linen cloth on it and it'll actually rapidly heal you. Like it'll speed up the healing process. It's been tested, they use it in hospitals in some countries. And then when you think back to like historical, they wrap mummies in linen. When you learn about mass production, you understand like what's cheapest, it's gonna be what's marketed the most and what's pushed the most. It's a lot easier to take materials and sort of take pieces of things and then like add it to something that's cheaper so that you can make more of it. Because, you know, this is like all about capitalism and like, you know, production and all that kind of thing. Oh, I didn't even know that. But I mean, as you said, like synthetic products, because they're cheaper to produce, but also you're right, they're synthetics. And the textiles and fibers that work best for us are the ones that are made from plants. But even before Madia started researching the healing properties of fabrics and doing educational workshops, she was like me a kid who liked to make things with whatever was around, trying to entertain herself and realize that she's quite resourceful. And that's what she did for most of her childhood. So um, growing up in East Orange, we were really resourceful. East Orange is not, I guess you consider it a hood or like, you know, like a ghetto, whatever you want to call it. But we didn't really grow up with like having a lot. Like there weren't a lot of things in abundance, but that tends to create very creative environments for children. You become resourceful, you become creative, you just start to be very innovative. And so my older brother and I were actually kids. 
We spent a lot of time at home after school and, you know, idle time is the devil's time or whatever people say, but it's like, <laughs> <laughs> just start making stuff and getting in things. So we were those kids who were making like race car tracks out of cardboard boxes and like so on and so forth. Everything was like a playground. Anything I could get my hands on was some type of material to do something with. So that actually, you know, turned over into fashion because I did have a natural interest in fashion. And I started to take, I want to say like my mom would have like tights or stockings that had a run in them. And I would just take those and like cut them up and like drape them on the Barbies, like bodies and like create different outfits. I always joke with a friend of mine and I'm like, yeah, all of my dolls, they look like girl groups, like R&B girl groups. <laughs> <laughs> they would have like all these matching outfits and like head wraps and like all this stuff. And then I'll go outside and play with them. That was just it. And then that kind of transferred over into more things because then I started to get really into fashion and like really thinking about what I wore and like what I put on because that was always an outward expression of like who you are in, on the inside. You know, and my mom would always kind of be like, you know, take pride in what you look like. She would braid my hair up into crowns. So that was something that just was always an innate part of my upbringing. And then eventually I started to get into cutting up actual like discarded clothing, not just tights. I would get like hand-me-downs from an older cousin or like my mom would have something that had like holes or like a tear in it. And she'd be like, here, I'm going to either toss this out or try to give this to the Salvation Army. So if you want to do something with it, take it out. And I'm like, okay. So I would get it and do stuff with it. Like Gordon, sewing came later for Madia. But once she learned how to sew, she was able to take her creativity and resourcefulness to the next level. I was just tying stuff, cutting yeah, stuff cutting and tying it, and it tying up. it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, no, like, you sew it. And I'm like, oh, like, you know, that just was a whole other world for me. And then I got a couple dollars. I went to the dollar store. I bought my first, like, sewing kit with, like, the needle and thread and stuff in it. And then my first project, I took a pair of jeans that were, like, something was wrong with them. I can't remember what, but I took them and I made, like, a messenger bag out of them. And I did the entire project by hand. My fingers were all, like, scabbed up and bloody from like poking my hands. But I just really valued the work and that feeling was like unmatched. Like I was just on top of the world after I was done. So how do you find your materials? Like they are things that have already been used, fibers and textiles. Where do you get them from? So I just got a real cool partnership with Goodwill. So they allow me to go and take in clothing that they have in their stores. So a lot of times I kind of can go in there pretty much with a bag and just grab whatever it is that I want and create from there. There's another place in Charlotte called Fabric Outlets. They're kind of a little bit all over North Carolina. They might be in other states too. But Fabric Outlets, they sell upholstery fabrics. And a lot of times they give away free fabric, which is like leftover material or remnant material from their yards. So I'll get my material from them as well. Then lastly, donations. Donations are like a big thing. So sometimes I occasionally do events where donations are included. The early beginnings of my sewing, I didn't have the money. Of course, you're a college student, you're coming out. I didn't have the money to buy new fabrics all the time. You know, occasionally I would, but you know, $15 a yard for jackets and these large amount of uh, materials that you want for a project, it, it starts getting a little costly. And I really just started thinking, you know, and I was kind of remembering what me and my grandmother were doing. We were just getting like, sometimes getting blankets, sometimes getting like leftover materials. And, you know, we would do like mock-ups with it. 
But then it just started realizing to me, actually, it's cooler that it looks like it came from something else. And then it's just reimagined in a new way. I think that's a little bit more edgy. And I just kind of like left my grandma that summer and I went back home and I was like, I want to keep that up. I want to keep doing that. I want to keep finding things that's already out there and reintroducing it in a new way. I never really gave it a name at that time. It was just something that I was doing. It was just like an act that I was doing. It's like, I don't have the means to get that high quality grade stuff that I you know, was looking at, but I do have the means to imagine and think about new ways of making new designs. And it would break down to me getting like baseball tees, blazers, denim jackets, corduroy dresses, and remaking those into bags, jackets. I'm looking at my, my clothing rack over here now kimonos, <laughs> turtlenecks, soccer jerseys, basketball jerseys. It just started evolving into this new design. And people actually appreciated it more because they knew that no one else would have it because these fabrics came from this one source. And it was designed in that way. So I always call it when Mother Nature slapped us all in the mouth <laughs> in 2020. You know, it was kind of like a moment <laughs> because everybody was just like, oh, wow. Like we thought that we could get away with doing things like this. But it was really like a sit down time. It was really like a moment where a new level of consciousness was being introduced. I really started coming to a sense of like, all right, if I'm gonna go more green in my lifestyle, that needs to be an ethos in my branding as well. And it only made sense. If I'm doing something that's affecting my personal health, my mind, my consciousness, that same level needs to be applied in business and in relationships and in community and in really that whole process. So I came up with this initiative called Renew Rework Roulette, where it was really centered around upcycling and taking things that's already existing and giving them a second life. But it was just funny because it was just something I've kind of just been doing, but I never gave it that specific name. That kind of reintroduced to me a whole new level of focus and then a whole new community that I can share like-minded thoughts and ideas with and even think about more ways that we can create regenerative systems. Who gets to create sustainable systems and are we actually acknowledging the ones who are making them? The ones who don't always have the most access, but who have ingenuity and lineage and, as Gordon said, creativity in their DNA. Maria was searching for more ways to be regenerative in her design and in her choice of materials. And although it was challenging trying to focus on natural materials without a whole bunch of resources, she persisted and found ways to decrease her environmental impact while still building a beautiful and well-crafted collection. After doing just linen, I was like, I want to just only source real, just naturally occurring materials, and that's it. And I kind of want that to be my brand's tagline. So going from there, I was like, all right. I started to look into fabric. I spent some time in Barbados and, you know, obviously was around a lot of nature for a while. I stayed there about three months. And then when I got back, I was just like, what is the closest I can get to making my own fabric? And I was like, I don't know how to use a loom yet. So what can I do? And I was just like, stay as close to nature as possible. So that's what I did when I got back. Did the linen. I collaborated with an elder there on the island. His name is Adelabu. He's a senior artist and a loom, like a textile artist. He creates his own textiles. So I got with him. I got a lot of his scrap materials and incorporated into that first collection. 
So that was big for me. And I, from there, I was just like, yeah, I have so much more respect for my practice and like what I do now. This needs to reflect in what I'm giving people, you know? And then from there, I was like, whoa, I can't afford to just be buying yards and yards of this fabric because this natural fabric is expensive. <laughs> and that's why people use polyester and plastic fabric because it's cheap. Yeah, and I'm like, this is why people want to use polyester and all these other things. And I was like, oh, there's always the catch-22. And so I was like, all right, take it back to the origins. Go back to Goodwill. Go back to the thrift stores. Go back to Salvation Army. Shout out to the Goodwill and Salvation Army for being spots where these designers could go get fabrics and textiles that would otherwise end up in a landfill here or on the shores of Haiti and Ghana. Gordon and Maria were being sustainable before it was trending, before YouTube DIYers were a thing, before they were even conscious of how resourceful they were. Designing and using materials that others may overlook were one in the same for both of them. So... I was still wondering. I mean, that leads me to the question, what does it mean to you to be a sustainable designer? And I do put it in quotes because, you know, my grandmother growing up, same thing. You're just like using what you have. I'm going to be honest, like the terms, like I said, are still very like raw, very fresh for me. And then even with that being said, there's almost like a bitterness to it for me because I'm like, I know there's so many other designers who look like me who are doing this, who probably don't know that there's this whole big like section of the industry that's like promoting and pushing this. And it's so unfair because it's like, you can't be a part of a conversation if you don't have the vocabulary for it. And so it took me taking some time to take a step back and educate myself, which was a big part of the reason why I was like, I need to incorporate mentorship and teaching and what I do because it's not fair. It's like, they don't know what's happening like out there. You know what I mean? And I'm like, so I need to take what I know, bring it back and like teach the youth and tell them like, here's what's happening right now. What you're doing with your sneakers, somebody's paying $7,000 for it. You know what I mean? Like all you're doing is drawing on your jeans. Somebody's paying X, Y, Z amount. They're commissioning people to make these pieces for celebrities. And it's like, they need to hear things like that because they don't. Nobody's telling them in their school systems like, oh, what you're doing is actually the future. Like you're doing what's already like, hot now and it's like they're just thinking they're just out here being kids and I'm like you are but that can also be monetized <laughs> and it's valuable yeah yeah that part so for me I just like I said it's something I've been doing since I was young but I didn't know it was like a thing but I want to say now it's just more about incorporating like healing in it and intention so I feel like the word sustaining is just obviously like enduring and like something supporting like mentally and physically, right? That's what you think of when you hear the word sustain. It's like, I've been doing that, but now I'm thinking of how I can incorporate the intention behind the brand. So that's what it's been like switching over to focusing more on the healing. So like the education is the big part for me because I'm like, I'm not going to just tell you, here, put this on, it's going to heal you. You know, I need to tell people why, like why it's so important to understand like the fabrics you put on your body. As we support all of the solutions to the fiber and fashion crisis, such as upcycling old clothes and fabrics, we can simultaneously call out the exclusion of Black and working class designers and garment workers from the sustainable fashion space. To build regenerative futures, we need to acknowledge, include, and 
co-create with Black designers and makers who are already modeling more sustainable practices that are centered in creativity, healing, and generations-long practices of making clothes to adorn ourselves. It's time for the wind down. I invite you to take a deep breath and stretch your body. Release tension in your shoulders, jaw, and neck. Taking a moment to reflect on the clothes that we buy new. Taking a moment to reflect on the natural fibers we are all able to wear. Today, we heard stories of designers paving the way to less fashion waste. We learned about grandmas sewing for NASA and the healing nature of linen. We talked through so many things, so let's just sit in that feeling for a bit. I invite you to take a deep breath and thank yourself for listening to something new today. I invite you to take a deep breath and imagine a life where nothing is thrown away. A life where clothes and fabrics are reused again and again until they can return to the earth. A life where Black designers are visible and supported in the space. Thank you for spending time with me and a couple of humans I admire. Thank you for listening, learning, and experiencing the material geographies that we are all made of. You can subscribe to Black Material Geographies anywhere you get your podcasts. Black Material Geographies is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. This podcast is a team effort. Thank you to the Black Material Geographies team, my producer, Tiffany Rogier, audio editor, Ray Royal, composer, Philip Kalechi Namdi Iro, researcher, Haven Obasalase, and intern, Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective Head of Podcasts, Celine Glazier, Sound Engineer, Max Kotolchuk, Associate Producer, Quentin LeBeau, Production Assistant, Amalissa Utinko, and Sound Intern, Simon Lavender. Thank you to Whetstone Art Director, Alex Bowman, for the cover art. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. 